online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, Saputo confirms plans to have six facilities in Australia. As an example, uh, we've also invested significantly in our Smithson facility in Tasmania um, and uh, that has come on stream as planned uh, during October and uh, is already delivering the benefits that we expected with Australia from you know, consolidation from our 11 facilities to, to six. And bumblebees may be part of the answer to combat varroa mite. Varroa doesn't affect bumblebees. So we're looking as part of this response and uh, for, at a national level to see the laws change to allow us to do the research uh, that we can on the current population of bumblebees to allow it to be uh, an alternative pollinator, a potential a commercial alternative pollinator. The humble bumblebee may play a part in future commercial pollination and Saputo says it pl- its plans are for six facilities in Australia, down from 11. That story coming up for you just in a moment. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this Monday. Hope you're going well, whatever you may be doing. A little bit windy in parts. Also today, some good training for the volunteer firefighters in Tasmania at the weekend competition. It was only a day before the fire broke out at Dolphin Sands, which, by the way, has been downgraded. And it's back to the drawing board for the fire levy. A working group will be set up to establish a new and fairer way of collecting the levy next year. Plus the reward for one northwest Tasmanian farmer working hard for mothers in rural and isolated communities across the country. The new Tasmanian of the year will check the weather as well and take your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 936. That number 0438 922 936. First up today, Saputo has released its latest financial results. The Australian division saw a drop of more than 10% compared to the same period last year. The results come as Saputo confirms a review of the King Island Dairy, which was mentioned during the webcast of the financial results. Here's Max Thierry from Saputo with details of the latest second quarter results from Australia. Revenues for the second quarter were $879 million down 11%, while adjusted EBITDA total $83 million, down 14% versus last year. The decline in revenue was mostly driven by lower export sales volume and the unfavorable relation between the international cheese and dairy ingredient market prices and the cost of milk as raw material, as our commodity selling prices are down versus last year. Saputo's Max Thierry on the latest results for the company in the second quarter of the fiscal year. During the webcast to discuss the financial results, Lino Saputo spoke briefly about the plans for the King Island Dairy. As part of our roadmap, we have decided to commence a review of strategic alternatives related to our King Island facility in Tasmania. We intend to keep the operations running at regular capacity while we assess possible future scenarios for the facility, including a potential sale. Once our optimization agenda is completed, we will have reduced our footprint from 11 to six facilities. We have a solid long-term vision for Australia and its business. Taking these necessary actions will help us refocus its core business, improve its operating cost structure, and provide a solid foundation for success. Lynn Cutts, who oversees the Australian division of Saputo, also hinted the King Island facility could be sold off as the Smithton plant in northwest Tasmania has received a multi-million dollar upgrade. And in Australia, to touch on that, we're already seeing the financial benefits from the network optimisation that we had already announced. 
we've got the milk that we need, and in, in, and in fact, we actually are we're back to historical utilisation levels uh, at our plants. As an example, uh, we've also invested significantly in our Smithson facility in Tasmania, um, and uh, that has come on stream as planned uh, during October, and uh, is already delivering the benefits that we expected. With Australia, from you know, consolidation from our 11 facilities to to six. We believe, yeah, that, that will continue to deliver financial benefits both now and into 25 and beyond. Lino Saputo was asked a question about the costs for dairy farmers and whether milk supplies would increase in the foreseeable future. When you look at what's going on around the world on the farming side, and this is not exclusive to the US or Europe or New Zealand, it's general context of the dairy farming community, production costs are weighing on the farmer sentiment, and, and that is what's driving uh, slowing milk production. The economics for the dairy farmers right now are very, very tough. And then compounded with that, you've got a high interest environment. So we don't see production off the farm level increasing dramatically in any way, shape or form, at least for the next six, nine, possibly even 12 months. At the same time, demand has been soft. I think we hit the bottom and uh, uh, we're starting to see some buyers come back to the market and starting to contemplate long-term supply of goods. Those are all very, very good signs, but the overall markets are still, from a pricing perspective, softer than the historical levels. Uh, And that's what we're contending with, both on the cheese side as well as on the ingredient side. As for the future of the company, Lino Saputo told the webcast the relentless drive to contain costs would continue under their strategic plan. We expect volatile consumer and market dynamics to continue, and we anticipate consumers to remain highly intentional in their spending, but we believe our broad portfolio of products and diversified channel exposure to position us well in consumer shopping carts. We will leverage our supply chain with a relentless focus on driving efficiencies in our business, optimizing our network and driving out costs. Head of Saputo, Lino Saputo there, speaking on the webcast for the second quarter results, where it was also confirmed the King Island Dairy Operation will undergo a review. Earnings for agribusiness giant Elders have fallen more than a quarter on the previous year, according to the results released today. Earnings before interest and tax are down 26% on the previous year to $171 million. The company's attributed the fall to lower prices for ag chemicals and a huge decline in livestock prices, as well as inflationary pressures and rising interest rates. Angus Furley spoke with Managing Director of Elders, Mark Allison, about the results. I think uh, when we look at the backdrop, which is a very difficult last 12 months through uh, regional rural Australia and uh, and agriculture, uh, with uh, commodity prices uh, coming off significantly, uh, the result is the uh, is pretty solid. It's the uh, the second highest result in 10 years for elders. Uh, the return on capital at 16% is uh, a premium return on capital. And uh, the uh, cash conversion that we've achieved has also been uh, very, very positive from a uh, shareholder viewpoint. So uh, I, I think making the best of difficult situations is, uh, is how I'd describe it. Uh, what aspect of the elders' business is responsible for most of the uh, profit decline? 
Well, I, th I think everyone throughout uh, regional rural Australia is aware of the, uh, the decline in livestock prices, both sheep and cattle. Our feeling as we were coming into FY23 was that there would be a decline from the record highs from previous years. Uh, we thought it might have been a 20 or 25% uh, reduction, but it's 60% uh, uh, plus across uh, a number of areas. So, so that, that's had a, uh, a big imp impact on the uh, business. And there's also been uh, the impact of uh, declining input uh, costs, which meant that we uh, had a higher price to inventory and we're obviously needing to sell that at a discount because of the declining uh, costs uh, coming in for replacement stock. And for your clients, for farmers, with that uh, big decline in livestock prices, I suppose uh, overall a big hit to confidence and, and reduced willingness or, or ability to spend on some of the products and services that Elders offers? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. I mean, it's, it is a significant hit. When you look at the farm management deposits around Australia, they're at a record high of $7 billion. So, uh, so it would seem, or the numbers would say, uh, that it's not a uh, crisis situation throughout uh, through uh, throughout uh, our ag communities uh, because there you know there's a fair um, uh, a bunch of uh, uh, deposits there and resources but it is very very difficult and uh, you know particularly where investments were made by many of our clients to increase the flocks and the herds uh, and they've had good uh, good seasons and then the uh, the value of their uh, their pr uh, product uh, is has diminished significantly. Yes, so it's very very difficult. If we look to the future, uh, the very strong El Nino forecast uh, in Victoria. To this point, we've had very good conditions, but uh, very strong expectations that it will get dry as it has in other parts of the country. So, uh, is the worst still to come? No, I don't think so. Uh, certainly, uh, my personal view on it is uh, quite positive and optimistic because we don't see El Nino events right across the board. They're, they tend to be regionalised and localised. Uh, the uh, I think the uh, the bomb uh, uh, is saying that uh, as we come into autumn, uh, any uh, potential El Nino effects uh, will be diluted. The oldest share price, though, it's uh, sitting just over $6. That's uh, around $4 less than it was at if we were having this conversation at the same time last year? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, I just had a quick look between uh, presentations this morning and it's up to, uh, it had got to $7 today. But yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of factors because you'll recall this time last year, there was also a succession issue that has been resolved. Uh, and uh, this time last year, we we're also going into uh, some uh, geopolitical uncertainties and the uh, early call that there will be an El Nino effect, which hasn't been anywhere near the level that was uh, called at that time. That succession issue, that was uh, in this time last year, you announced or the company announced that you would eventually be departing the business, but then earlier this year, that, that decision was reversed and you, you made, well, a lot of money was put on the table to incentivise you to stay with the business? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, it's a really exciting period this next three years. Uh, when we look at the fourth eight-point plan, so we overachieved all of our commitments for the first three eight-point plans. They're, they're all three-year plans. And I think uh, now running through uh, for the next three years, particularly with the uh, systems modernisation that we're putting in place, which will allow elders to have a platform to further service and, and uh, cross-service our clients uh, with uh, new innovative um, uh, management systems, etc. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, like a really exciting period. The, the issue with El Nino or cl climatic cycles and with livestock cycles is that they're cycles 
uh, we commit to 5 to 10% growth through the cycles. And, uh, you know, as we go through the next three years, uh, the market conditions will be more favourable. Having said that, the business model was resilient enough to allow us to uh, to deliver pretty strong results this year on the back of uh, or in the face of difficult market conditions. Elders has spent quite a lot of money on an automated wool handling facility in Melbourne. When's that going to be up and running? Uh, so uh, there's uh, one in uh, Perth and one in Melbourne. So in Perth, uh, that was launched in um, in July this year, and that's operating well. And the the Melbourne facility uh, will be opened in uh, February next year. So uh, and it's a three hundred eighty thousand bale capacity. So uh, across the uh, across the two. So it's, again, it's pretty exciting. And also, you know, the twenty five million dollars investment into wool. Uh, it's the biggest investment in wool for many, many years. And I, I guess just shows our core DNA. Next year we'll be a 185-year-old company and, uh, you know, regional rural Australia, wool and uh, livestock and agribusiness is our core. And are you content with that investment at a time when there has been a move away from wool production in a lot of areas? Yeah, well, well I think, you know, wool is still an important industry in Australia. And there may have been a move away in terms of uh, alternative uh, products uh, to uh, to use, but uh, from our viewpoint, th- this is multi generational client base. You know, we, we've uh, we've started in the wool industry. Uh, the prospect of us not, in fact, we are the only ones to reinvest significantly in the wool industry, and we believe in it. A, a common criticism of, of big businesses like Elders is that they're not necessarily paying their their fair fair share of the tax burden. What what's Elders' mm-hmm. tax bill look like? Uh, well, you're probably aware of back back in the day. In fact, when I uh, when I joined the board, uh, we were in bad bank and almost uh, had made multiple losses, and uh, and therefore we we had a significant build up of tax losses, and so you need to earn your way out of those tax losses. So we haven't because of the tax loss situation, uh, we haven't been paying uh, tax as we take up all the tax losses and we're just about at the point where now we're through all those tax losses because of the uh, the strong growth of the business. Okay, so right through till now after that lean trot for elders, you, you, you haven't paid any tax through that period? Uh, no, we, we have paid because we have a number of entities where we're not uh, one, a majority owner. And so in those, we, we pay taxes. And that's why, you know, our dividend, the, the 23 cent dividend is 30% uh, franked uh, because we do use our tax credits, or sorry, the, the, yeah, the tax credits, franking credits uh, from the entities where, where they're uh, not wholly owned by us. Elders recently made a big acquisition in southwest Victoria, purchasing the, the Charles Stewart Group. That's a livestock and real estate agency business. What was the, the rationale there? Uh, well, yeah, the same rationale that we use for all of our Bolton acquisitions. So we had a geographical gap, and we had a uh, uh, we had a product and service uh, gap in that case, the real estate and uh, agency uh, livestock agency. Uh, and so, and then then we uh, go through our acquisition process, which is to determine if uh, the culture of the business fits us, safety culture, the uh, uh, quality of the people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we, we felt that there was a very strong alignment between. Uh, Charles Stewart and ourselves, and uh, it, it fits a uh, fills a significant gap that we had in Victoria. Just finally, as we touched on earlier, uh, in terms of succession, you had planned to leave. You, you've now planned to stay with the business. Uh, how long have you got left to run? Yeah, well, uh, I uh, my intent is to see out this eight point plan, and the uh, 
the jack that I use around head offices. And the good news is there's wheelchair access to head office, so I could be here for a long, long time. Elders Managing Director and Chief Executive Mark Allison speaking there with Angus Furley. Where earnings before interest and tax down 26% on the previous year to $171 million. Coming up on the country, our new biosecurity strategy for the state. Are you emergency ready? This summer, the risk of emergency weather conditions is high and the time to prepare is now. Everything you need to get ready is at abc.net.au slash emergency with checklists and resources to help keep you and your family safe before, during and after an event. And during an emergency, for important and timely local information, find your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The threat of varroa mites and the latest fruit fly season were highlighted during the launch of the latest five-year biosecurity strategy for Tasmania. Primary Industries Minister Joe Palmer launched the strategy at an agricultural forum in Devonport and spoke to Meg Powell about the important role farmers and the community have in preventing pests and diseases from entering the state. So we know how important biosecurity is uh, right across the primary industries that we have here in Tasmania. We know what it means to have good biosecurity measures for our fruit growers, uh, for our vegetable producers, uh, our aquaculture industry, livestock and of course our honey industry as well. So today we're here to launch the 2023 to 2028 Tasmanian biosecurity strategy. So this strategy is looking at how are we prepared right now for any threats that could come our way and how do we make sure that we're prepared into the future. So it's looking at things like what's happening in other jurisdictions, what research should we be looking at, what are our plans right now, what are our connections with all of our stakeholders and what is this legislative framework that needs to be in place to ensure that we have those solid biosecurity measures. So standing with me today we have uh, Mark Cable who is representative of our vegetable growers across uh, Tasmania and we also have Peter Cornish joining us. Peter has two hats on of course as uh, Fruit Growers Tasmania but also on our uh, Biosecurity Advisory Committee. Biosecurity is fundamental to our industry and the future of our industry. We are very fortunate to, to have a, an amount of water around us but, but the work that's done uh, by uh, in particular the Tasmanian Government who sees biosecurity as a, a fundamental role of government. It is everyone's responsibility and certainly as industry we're part of it and but that that biosecurity not only uh, supports industry but also our way of life and also our environment. So it really affects everyone in that part of it. So whether it's part of the advisory committee or certainly from Fruit Growers Tasmania perspective, uh, keeping out these pests and disease and we've got many threats and fruit fly and varroa are particular ones right here and now. These are important for us to be able to access international markets, to be able to promote the, the Tasmanian grown image and brand that allows us to grow premium product and attract premium, premium prices. So it's essential for our industry. What does this strategy actually look like? Is it just we've got a moat and we're going to use it or probably more complex than that? A touch more complex than that. It's certainly about informing people and the stakeholders who understand. And as I mentioned, it's not just about industry, but also about the environment uh, and also our way of life. But also it is, as, as the Minister mentioned, about preparedness in case of incursion. But it's also about uh, assessing risk, risk assessment and risk-based response. And particularly at the moment when we have these, a multitude of risk. And, and in the last 
last few years the government has invested in more resources for risk assessment. Uh, we have all these threats coming at us and to be able to assess these risks, prioritise them and work out our response. But for example, the securing our borders approach that the government has, um, we're now in the high risk season for fruit fly and it's, it's interception and preventing these diseases and pests get here in the first place is the most important because it's far better than trying to, to treat a, an incursion. So it's, it has many factors to it um, in terms of that preparedness, in terms of that defence, but also that response in case of an incursion. So what are some of the uh, scenarios? You've, I, I imagine you've modelled some scenarios, say we do get Varroa here, have you looked at using other pollinators? Yeah, look, it's a very good uh, question. So particularly in Tasmania's circumstance, um, we have by, by uh, history we have bumblebees. So bumblebees are, are something, unfortunately, they're illegal So uh, from a national perspective. So we're only very restricted in what sort of efforts we're able to do. But throughout the rest of the world, um, who, who works with, uh, have to work with Varroa, Varroa doesn't affect bumblebees. So we're looking as part of this response and uh, for, at a national level to see the laws change to allow us to do the research uh, that we can on the current population of bumblebees to allow it to be uh, an alternative pollinator, a potential a commercial alternative pollinator. Most of our industries are, um, are requiring commercial pollination. We don't have to go for free pollination so it's very important to be able we are happy to pay for pollination it's, it's uh, a fundamental to our industry so that's one of the real key areas that we're hoping we will see some national change to allow us to do the research and the investigation of our current population of bumblebees to see whether that can be an alternative for the future. Minister Palmer, is that something the government is uh, in support of? Yeah, we are. We're really um, supportive of the industry's um, drive to see change in this space and we've already engaged with our federal colleagues um, because, you know, it's amazing that varroa mite was uh, contained for as long as it was in New South Wales and, you know, perhaps it's inevitable that we may end up having it here in Tasmania. So we have to be ahead of the game uh, and we have to be making sure that we are looking at some of these innovative ideas and ensuring that we're in a position to uh, offer this to uh, our, our fruit industry. To be clear, bumblebees will not replace European honeybees. European honeybees are the, and they're unfortunately very affected by varroa. Um, and it's manageable. Varroa is manageable, but it will cost more. And there will be a change to our wild population of honeybees, um, uh, but there will be changes for the industry. And it's about bringing our colleagues in the bee industry uh, along with the pollination industries because European honeybees will remain fundamental to our, our pollination services, but we need to look at other things as well. I'd just like to echo what Peter Peter said, um, biosecurity is the backbone and success of the vegetable industry. It all starts for us with good biosecurity, whether it's on farm, state level, you know, um, government, uh, um, international level. We've got to have good biosecurity rules and regulations and policies. So it's critical for the success of our industry. Um, we don't rely as heavily as, as, as honeybees um, for pollination as the as the fruit sector do, but our um, vegetable seed sector relies on them heavily so um, there's one p opponent there that, 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 that is critical um, but look it all comes back to good biosecurity and we've got to have it for the success so we're all for this new policy. Mark could you just explain for the average Joe I don't think they'd really think about biosecurity on a vegetable farm what are you talking about there? What are the concerns? Well, on the basic level, it's, it's hygiene of machinery. In northern Tasmania, we, we, we rely heavily on contractors and, and uh, companies that uh, 
uh, provide all their own machinery that goes from farm to farm to planting for harvesting, for spraying, and, and um, the industry has a has multitude of uh, field officers and agronomists. And it's got to be back to that level where agronomists got to be uh, um, wary and, and conscious of soil and disease on their, on their boots every time they go to 10 or 12 or 20 different paddocks every farm uh, every day. So that, that's just some of the basic stuff. But, um, you know, luckily we do have a, 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 a moat around us. But again, we can't rest on our laurels. And, and even, as I said, down to the basics of on-farm biosecurity is critical to stop the spread of, of uh, new weed seeds and, and pest diseases. Mark Cable from Harvest Moon speaking there to Meg Powell at the launch of the latest five-year biosecurity strategy for Tasmania. It's on the NRE website. Well, volunteer firefighters from across the state gathered in the north at the weekend for the annual firefighting championships. And for some, their work on Saturday was a rehearsal for the fire at Dolphin Sands late yesterday. Course Marshal at the Championships, Laura Smith, says the gathering is a much-anticipated event. Just that this is a really fantastic opportunity for our firefighters to come together and to showcase their skills in a healthy, competitive environment. Um, and also um, to network and to build that camaraderie, which really comes to the fore um, in the fire season, particularly when we do have bigger fires where we're um, called on to help one another across the state it um, is really nice to see a familiar face on the fire ground it's somebody that you've met at the competitions track and you have some faith um, that your colleagues um, are highly skilled and they know what they're doing Um, so some of the drills that we have here at the championships association are some pump drills so making sure that we're able to use the pumps that are fitted to our fire trucks and also portable pumps um, in a bushfire setting. Uh, We also run hose drills so testing our skills at bowling and rolling hoses and handling branches making sure that we can put our fires out as efficiently and safely as possible. Laura Smith of course marshal of the Tasmanian firefighters competition held at the weekend and the Emergency Services Minister Felix Ellis scrapped the plan changes to the fire levy and will form a working group to come up with another plan. The Minister announced the change after meeting with stakeholders, including the TFGA, to hear concerns about the changes, which would have seen some farmers pay up to 1,000% more for the levy. We're really committed to making sure that we deliver this reform uh, and what we've heard from uh, stakeholders right across the community is the need for it. We need to be investing in our fire and emergency services for a more challenging future. Uh, Now we're at the drawing board with unions, first responders, business uh, and local government to make sure that we can find uh, that right solution. Uh, We want to work together and move forward together uh, because ultimately Uh, We need to be delivering this critical reform for the future of our state. Uh, You know, the cost of the Denali bushfires in terms of damage was $89 million. That's more than the total cost of the fire season for that whole year in 2013. So making sure that we're investing up front uh, means uh, that we save uh, in terms of rebuild costs uh, down the track. And the people behind me here today uh, know just how important it is uh, that they have the best possible equipment for them to save lives, but also to be safe while they're doing so as well. It's for these people and the broader community that we need these reforms. That's the critical challenge that we've got. The SES funding model everybody knows is broken. Uh, The fire service model for funding through the three levies that we have currently, everybody knows that they're broken. And so now the journey of reform 
is to come together and find that right compromise, work together and move forward together. Uh, because, as I say, the people behind me, other first responders like the SES, we need to be backing them in so that they can save lives and that they can prevent the massive damage that happens when more frequent, more severe natural disasters could potentially rip through our communities. Emergency Services Minister Felix Ellis on the working group, which will work out a way to implement the new fire levy. Coming up on the country, out the Northwest farmer named Tasmanian of the Year, and we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Loretta Loberger. Good afternoon, Tony. The World Health Organisation is reporting that the largest hospital in Gaza has ceased to function and says more patients are dying. The Israeli military says it's delivered 300 litres of petrol to a location near the hospital. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Hamas refused the fuel. The militant group says the 300 litres would last only 30 minutes, belittling the sick and wounded. The Tasmania Fire Service says a bushfire on the state's east coast, which destroyed two houses, has been contained, but it's warning residents to remain alert. Two houses, a shed and a car have been destroyed in the fire and the TFS says it's expected several other structures have also been affected. Crossbench members of federal parliament are leading a call for the government to ban the logging of public native forests. Four Australian jurisdictions have already banned or have plans to ban the logging of native forests on public land and advocates say it must end now to save the country's ecosystems and native animals. And there's growing frustration in Vanuatu with the ongoing political instability in the country. There have been three prime ministers in as many months and now the current government has asked the president to dissolve parliament and call fresh elections. More news at one o'clock. Let's check the latest on the weather now. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Afternoon, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. Uh, Rainfall figures, did we get any? Well, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, most of the rainfall was about the west and the far south of the state, with the highest totals being 20 millimetres at Mount Bobs, followed by 17 millimetres at Strathcordon and 16 millimetres at Warra. There were a few lighter showers along the east as well. Since 9am this morning, there have been no significant rain. There has been no significant rainfall. And the outlook for the week ahead. Well, for today, we've got cloudy conditions about the west, but lots of clear skies for the remainder of the state. And we're expecting fine weather apart from light showers about the west and westerly winds, which are currently fresh and gusty in the south of the state. As we head into tomorrow, showers continuing about the west and south, but easing during the morning and then clearing in the afternoon. And then we'll see showers developing about the northeast during the afternoon as a trough develops in the northeast, but fine otherwise. And west to southwesterly winds becoming variable in the northeast during the day. Due to that trough in the northeast, isolated showers will continue about eastern parts of the state on Wednesday, but it will be fine elsewhere until showers develop about the west and far south during the late afternoon and evening, and that's as a cold front approaches. That cold front is due to move over Tasmania early Thursday, so we'll still see showers about the west and south extending to the east during the morning and then easing in the evening, but fine elsewhere. And on Friday, showers about the west and far south and fine elsewhere. And warnings, do we have any? Yes, for today there is a gale warning for southern coastal waters from Tasman Island to Low Rocky Point and a strong wind warning for the central west coast and for northern coastal waters from Stanley to St Helens Point. 
And for tomorrow, a strong wind warning for southern and lower eastern coastal waters from Wineglass Bay to Low Rocky Point, including the Channel, and a strong wind warning for the central north coast. For the coastal waters, today westerly winds of 15 to 25 knots, increasing to 25 to 35 knots about the south, and also reaching up to 30 knots in the northeast. Winds are lighter and more variable about the central east. The swells in the west and south are a west to southwesterly of 4 to 5 metres, and the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 3.7 metres. In the north, a westerly around 1 metre, and in the east, a southerly of 1 to 2 metres, although southwesterly 3 to 5 metres offshore in the south. For tomorrow, west to southwesterly winds at 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots about the south and lower east during the morning, and then decreasing to 10 to 20 knots in the evening, and winds are tending variable 5 to 15 knots about the northeast during the afternoon. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 4 to 6 metres, reaching up to 7 metres in the southeast. In the north, a westerly around 1 metre. And in the east, a southerly of 1 to 2 metres, building to 2 to 4 metres during the day and reaching 4 to 6 metres in the south. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Tony. Cheers. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the country out. Merry Christmas. It's Rick Goddard from Breakfast on ABC Radio Hobart. Last year, the ABC Giving Tree raised over $250,000. That is your amazing Tasmanian generosity. That allowed us to give vouchers and Christmas Day lunches to more than 1,400 families and over 3,000 children and adults all right here in Tasmania. This year, the ABC Giving Tree has been planted and we're asking you to please dig deep and give what you can. Donate online at abc.net.au slash givingtree. On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listener. This is The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, from her farm near Deloraine, Stephanie Trithui never expected her weekly podcast on rural women would take off and turn into a charity and online mother's group. But it did, and in a big way. And it's this advocacy work supporting women across the country that's earned her the 2024 Tasmanian Australian of the Year title. She spoke to Larissa Smith about her mission to tackle social isolation in the bush. So I guess it started as a podcast. So our podcast every week shares really real and raw stories of rural motherhood. We talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. Mental health's a big theme. That podcast has had over 750,000 downloads. We have about 8,000 downloads a week. Um, and then it's evolved into much more. I had my second baby, Evie, in the middle of the pandemic. I had two under two <laughs> while growing while growing our beef business. It was a really, really challenging time. And it just all, all sort of clicked for me. I, I didn't have access to a mother's group, uh, not in the same way I had one when we were living in Melbourne. Um, and I did a survey and over 50% of rural mums around Australia said that they didn't have access to a mother's group. So I created Motherland Village, which is Australia's first online rural mother's group program. And we've taken over 200 rural women through our program in just under two years, creating over 20 virtual villages and taking them through our six-week program, which is all about building friendships, meaningful connections and reducing that social isolation. Now, you suffered uh, postnatal depression um, through that time as well, and that was a real focus for you when you took out the AgriFutures Rural Woman of the Year. Has that model really helped some of these women deal with postnatal depression and just the everyday juggles of raising kids and running a farm? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I talk a lot about the fact that there is a real pressure in rural Australia for men and women to be resilient. Um, and I use that in inverted commas because I increasingly don't like that word. It can create a lot of pressure for rural people, rural families to put up and shut up during hard times. And I felt that pressure too. I've talked about the fact that, you know, I had a miscarriage between my children and I just felt like I had to get on with it. I jumped on the quad bike the next day with Sam to move cattle after losing that baby. I just, I felt all this pressure to be a tough country woman. And I've increasingly found that that's not what people need. That's not what's best for their mental health. They need to embrace being vulnerable and talking about the hard stuff. And that's what Motherland does. It provides a safe place for mums to talk about this stuff because it is real um, and it is, you know, a big problem. We're finding that of the women who come through our program who've suffered from some level of postnatal anxiety or depression, 96% say that the program has improved it. So we're starting to really move the dial and I'm just really excited that um, yeah, I get to do this. And now it's become a charity. So uh, what what's involved there? Yeah, so we've been a national charity for oh, just under 18 months now and that's just helped us grow and it's helped us work with, I guess, other organisations and, and really it felt like the right thing to do. You know, I, I started this as a labour of love. I started this because I didn't want another rural mum to feel as alone and isolated as I once did. So we've got huge plans. You know, we've got a scholarship fund that supports rural women experiencing financial hardship to access our program free of charge. Um, people can apply for a scholarship to access our national conference, which is really exciting. So Motherland's first national conference is happening right here in Tassie in Launceston in March with some huge names coming to town. And that's all about filling our cups, getting women from all over the Australia farm mums from all over to come together for two epic days. So I'm really excited about that and bringing that home to Tassie. How are you managing this network and charity and the growing responsibilities of an expanding agricultural business? Do you feel stretched? <laughs> that's a that's an understatement. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I I'm not going to pretend that I'm I'm sitting here in the paddock um, in my car away from my children. I had to escape so I could talk to you. Um, I'm not going to pretend that that life is is easy and rosy. Like it's tough. You know, farming is relentless. Anyone listening knows that. So I have an incredible husband who does most of the work. I mean, Motherland is something we didn't expect to evolve into what it has. It was only ever supposed to be this tiny little project and side hustle. But you know, when when opportunity you know, knocks, you, you've got to open those doors. And I've just, I just have such a passion and fire in my belly to support rural families. So I'm really lucky to have an incredible husband. We, we, we do struggle, you know, we don't have any family here. Our closest family is nearly three hours away in Hobart. We, we do struggle with a lack of village here. It's hard, but you know, I love what I do. We love what we do. And you know, it's the season we're in. We've got two young kids as well, two under five and we'll get there. But um, yeah, it's certainly been tough. Uh, does this motherland uh, experience help you appreciate the closeness of rural communities in Tasmania? It's quite different to to perhaps um, well, where you were from in Melbourne and, and then, uh, you know, you came from Brizzy too. Yeah, I mean, the respect that I have for rural communities and for farmers, full stop, male and female, is just phenomenal. Like, I've changed so much as a person the last four years um, coming from, I mean, I grew up in the city, grew up in Sydney, so this is a long way from home, but I can't imagine being anywhere else. And what I've increasingly come to learn is that, you know, rural mums, rural women are the backbone of our rural communities. They are the glue holding everything together and you know I've talked about all the many hats they wear you don't just have to be in the cattle yards doing the physical farming stuff to be 
the linchpin of the household. You know, there's women who are in the offices running bush businesses, they're entrepreneurs, they're the station cooks, you know, far beyond Tassie. There's a whole world of huge stations of the mums that I work with and what they take on there. And, you know, here at home, rural communities are such a big part of Tassie and I'm just so proud that, you know, I get to live here, I get to be here and I get to grow this here. Yeah, well done, Stephanie Trafui, Rural Advocate, 2024 Tasmanian Australian of the Year. And the Tasmanian recipients will join those from other states and territories for the national awards, which will be announced on January 25. Doug from White Beach. G'day, Doug. Uh, he says, hi, Tony. Ray Fire Levy, the Minister may have learnt to consult affected parties first before making unpopular decisions. Thank you for that, Doug. 0438922936, that number. Consumer confidence is shaky in China, where financial markets are dropping, but so are temperatures. And wool producers are hopeful. That means demand for cosy Aussie wool jumpers. Jenny Turner is a wool marketing rep for the Riverina in Colcan with Fox and Lily Rural. She says the wool brokers hosted a delegation from China last week and gained some interesting insights for the market. Well, I guess what was interesting was that we started with um, uh, negative speculation, thoughts that the AUD was going to rise further post, um, a post-US currency being down and some rate rises, but it, it didn't happen. So we ended up with quite a reasonable um, firm market. Uh, Fox and Lily actually hosted a small delegation from China this week, and, and we got some really interesting background on what's impacting people's attitude there these days. Real estate in China is 60% down. Um, from where it was before, so a lot of negative equity. Share market in China is half of what it used to be, so their their ideas of wealth have really changed. Um, we heard some great news about some innovation in carding machinery. Traditional carding users must use wool that's free from burn. To achieve this, they chemically treat it by the carbonising process. Mm-hmm. But these new advanced carding drums can actually um, process up to 1.5% veg, which is significantly higher. So that was, we, we thought that was pretty cool news. Um, and not something we can verify yet, um, but one report from a source in China was that retail is showing some, some really tentative signs of better sentiment. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, speaking about real estate movement and share market changes in China, how does that sort of translate over to the wool market? I think it, it's, it's probably best described in terms of confidence. Um, and also in terms of, of general wealth. We are highly impacted um, by domestic China retail and that real estate and share market really affects the mums and dads in China, so directly affects their, um, their, their purchasing of woolen jumpers. Uh, we are heading into summer here, but what about temperatures in China? Well, I'm so pleased you asked that, Fiona, because we have good news for the Aussie wool market. The temperature in China dropped like a stone this week, so hopefully this helps with winter clothing purchases. <laughs> um, and just very quickly, Jenny, anything we need to know about the week ahead? We have uh, 45,500 bales on offer this week, which is uh, you know getting towards a, a bigger sale that we'd expect for this time of year. Inquiry levels have not been overwhelming, but there seems to be enough interest from the commission buyers to expect the market to be well supported with the greater interest on the 19 micron and broader. Jenny Turner from Fox and Lily Rural speaking there with Fiona Broom about the wool market and what's happening this week. Coming up in just a moment, expansion of blueberries. Nightlife with Philip Clark. 
thinking more positively about where you're going is hugely important. I mean, it's clinically been demonstrated, isn't it? Interestingly, there's some links to suggest that our mindset and the way that we feel, everything is linked. So we see sometimes when people have negative affect over certain things, there's differences in their immune function in terms of they have higher levels of inflammation. Nightlife with Philip Clark. Monday to Thursday from 10 on the ABC Listen app from ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Western Australia's biggest blueberry grower is getting much bigger and so is the size of the fruit. The fishers already have 65 hectares of blueberries near Gingin, just north of Perth. But they plan to gradually quadruple the size of their operation over the next four or five years. And as Richard Hudson discovered, they're confident about the future because of the varieties they grow, emerging export markets, and the success of a brand new mechanical harvester. What do you reckon? If you've bought blueberries recently, you'll have noticed they're selling for between, say, 2 and $3 a punnet, which is relatively cheap. And some farmers are saying at that price they just can't make any money. But Marek Fisher doesn't really care about the current prices. The reason why I have such confidence in growing these varieties in Australia and expanding our farms to the, to the proportion that we're, we're talking is because the size, the quality, the taste, the bloom, especially the size, allows us to provide the Australian consumer with a brand new product of which they already know it's a blueberry. And we can put these berries into the market and overshadow existing producers producing one or two gram berries, whereas these berries are five, seven, eight up to 10, 15 grams. The breeder that we have aligned with has the current world record for the largest blueberry. In the Guinness World Record, it's currently at 18.6 grams, I believe, and it's from a breeder in, in WA, and at 18.6 grams, one 125-gram punnet would end up with seven berries in it. <laughs> That's the sort of difference in product that we can start looking at doing. And if we could provide that to the whole country... Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you plant this many berries? And I believe some overseas buyers specifically like the bigger, the bigger the better. Yeah, the, the Hong Kong and the Singapore markets, they love their jumbo fruit. And their jumbo specification is, is 18 millimetres plus. We're providing fruit at 25 millimetres plus in a super jumbo package, which is unseen of, unheard of, for, to be quite frank, unheard of returns. So it does cost us a lot of money to get it there. We're, eight, we're air freighting out of Perth Airport about uh, 20 pallets a week at the moment. But even with the returns that we're getting, we're, we're quite happy to continue doing that. How do berries, blueberries, hold up longer term, though? Sending them by air would be relatively expensive. Have you looked into sending them by sea? Yeah, we have. Our joint venture partners are a South African company that... Uh, they sea freight blueberries from the Cape and Johannesburg 50 days by boat into Europe. And so they, and generally it's, it's packed, but also unpacked and they go to pack houses in Europe. But, you know, when you can sea freight something for 55 days, that is a huge 
bonus for us. Singapore is five days by boat, which would probably be a, be a 10 day from farm to customer once you add in customs and, and trucking down and, and all of that. So if, we can, if they can do 55 days, we could do 10, 20 days to most of the major ports in Asia. This blueberry farm was established in 2012 by Marek's dad, Derek, who used to be a geologist. It sounds like Derek's still not afraid to try new things, and that's why they've just bought a mechanical harvester. And this one here is the first one being used on blueberries in WA. Um, it's an oxbow harvester from built in Washington State in northwest US. We're on a learning curve, but so far it's working very well. And we better keep walking, otherwise it's going to harvest us. It's going to run us over. <laughs> They call it a straddle harvester. It's like a grape harvester. The ripe fruit falls, falls off the plants onto what are fish plates and then they drop down on the conveyors which take it to the back and it goes into trays. So this machine arrived in March. It's only been working for the last couple of months. It takes about five people to drive and work alongside it but each machine can replace lots and lots of hand pickers. The cost of harvesting is probably 10%, if not less, compared to hand harvesting fruit. So um, we, at this point in time, it's costing us about 50 cents a kilo, and these are on young plants. We believe that'll probably halve again, you know, 50 cents at the moment versus an average of about $6 a kilo by hand harvesting. Wow. So you're looking at expanding, does that mean you're looking at getting more harvesters? Absolutely. We've only got one at the moment and after this season we will be ordering one or two more. We've got eight new varieties of blueberries here. Most of them have been bred for machine harvesting. But Derek's son Marek plans to mechanise more than just harvesting. Part of his expansion plan is to reduce costs on just about every job on the farm. Whether it's pruning, weed maintenance, spraying, maintenance of the, of the structures, you know, there was a lot of planning in initially that went into, into what we're doing and a lot of foresight has gone into how we built this particular bird net that we're in at the moment. Bird net number one, we made some mistakes. We put plants in the ground, which we won't do again. We put shorter rows. You know, so when you, when you go towards a mechanical, I guess, mentality, you can't just go off existing projects and, and think that you can just change everything immediately. You know, we, we've made our mistakes. We've been in blueberries now for 12, 13 years, and we didn't wake up yesterday and go, let's do machine harvest on, on all of our existing farms. We won't be able to fit our, these machines into the 7.5 hectares of plastic tunnels that we have because they just don't fit. There's no machines available. We have designed this bird net structure that we're in at the moment so eventually we can GPS all the lines all of the weed maintenance will be done by autonomous vehicles all of the the spraying will eventually be done by autonomous vehicles and the idea of that is you're going to need a lot less workers I'd imagine massively a lot less workers <laughs> the robots are coming on farm Derek Fisher with his son Marek who is managing the expansion of their Western Berry company at Regan's Ford just north of Perth and by 2028 they have to have about 250 hectares of blueberries and that story from Richard Hudson is on our ABC Rural website and we'll catch you after midday tomorrow for the Country Hour